This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I'm being joined by guest Yin Woon Rani. Now, if you haven't heard of Yin, she's the CEO of MilkPep, and that's the organization that helps milk companies of America, which is about a $25 billion industry, if you weren't aware, uh, to encourage people to drink and enjoy milk. You probably know them as the people that have put out those incredibly iconic milk ads for decades. In the past, she's held roles like the chief consumer experience officer at Campbell Soup Company, and even played a role on the agency side of the business as the president of Universal McCann in North America and multiple leadership roles at Gray. But needless to say, Yin has been around the block as both a world-class marketing leader and also worked with some of the industry's best talent over the years. And she's got some really strong opinions about what it takes to succeed today. So we're going to learn from her experiences and discuss her feelings on why the answer to smart marketing isn't about whether it's either this or that, but actually yes and dot, dot, dot. And with that, here we go with another week of OSHIP. Yin, welcome to OSHIP. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me, Freddie. Always fun to see you. Fun to catch up. <laughs> and this time live on camera. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you and I got a chance to get to know each other over the last couple of years. I was uh, in- incredibly excited when I heard you joined uh, Milk. And I think that was just, you know, honestly, a really interesting, uh, exciting career move, which we're going to get to. But I want to try and help set up some context about your background and, and your prior experience. So uh, you worked with so many great brands over the years. I'd love to know what leadership role you feel like was the most transformative of, of your career before Milk. No, it's a great question. I've been very lucky to have worked on some amazing assignments overall and with great teams and great clients. Probably the one that was the most transformational was stepping into the leading Universal McCann, as you mentioned earlier. I had grown up in a creative agency, great, both um, pre-WPP and post. Uh, I was recruited out of there to help as part of Media Brand's overall transformation. And they really wanted someone with deep client service skills and business acumen. And it opened up a whole world to me, basically, um, of media and analytics and just put me in a different part of the ecosystem and stretched my my brain and my talent and my network. And um, it really was an important pivot. That's interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I was I was going to guess that you were say, would say it was when you kind of shifted from the agency side to uh, the brand side. But I, yeah, I guess it's a great because it did it, before that it really forced you to kind of flex a new part of your brain. You know, as, uh, as you go through each of these different um, stages uh, of your of your career, I'd love to understand what it's like being shifting from uh, effectively a traditional marketing leader um, actually over to the CEO role for the first time. It's a great question. I mean, I'm a little bit lucky because uh, Molpep is so focused on marketing, so it's not as big a change perhaps as if you were to go run something with a manufacturing footprint. I think the biggest shift is one that maybe I've been preparing for for my whole career is really thinking about marketing and decision-making within a broader business context. That was my biggest lesson going from agency to client at Campbell and continues into this role. 
um, a CEO really has to think about the whole operations, the whole commercial piece making and trying to ground marketing decisions into business. I know it sounds very obvious, but I would fault myself as a longtime agency professional that sometimes I was not as close to the realities of client businesses and operational needs as I should have been. Um, so I think as a CEO, you always are trying to look at the whole equation, not just the marketing piece of it. It's probably been the biggest shift. And then for me, making sure that the marketing team has room to do what they do and I'm not being sort of like the closet puppet master on the back and, you know, sort of being clear where I'm, I get very intentional about where I spend my time as a CEO. I don't want to be um, undermining and undercutting the marketing team simply because that was my profession. I, I want to divide this up into a couple of different thoughts for a second. So I think there is a, uh, a side of, of your role that is, is uh, like you said, you've got a serious business. I mentioned, I, I, and correct me if I was wrong when trying to do my homework, but I, it's $25 billion milk industry that's out there. So there's a serious, very serious business component of this. I think you're having to think of top mind as the CEO. And then there's another part of this, which uh, which I think is like when you're putting our old agency hats on of me, me included that you know, it's milk. I mean, it's the got milk ads and all the other types of milk ads are out there. They've been to expand these, these ads have been, you know, they're iconic. They're, they've been, and they've been top of mind for people for a long time. I want to start with the the easier of these two questions which is the, the second one. How does it feel to basically be entrusted with, with this kind of iconic brand and you know, that's just generated so much cool advertising, ad, putting your, ad, your ad, ad person hat on basically, you know? I mean, it's a real pleasure and it's a real privilege. I mean, I think the Got Milk ads are in the, you know, the top 10 most remembered campaigns ever. And so it's, uh, you try to steward that, I think, heritage with some care, with some gratitude, with some grace. You try not to put too much pressure on yourself too, I guess, of always <laughs> trying to do what is right today and find that balance between honoring the heritage or something while making it relevant. There's a lot of what my tenure has been about, ex- accelerated by COVID. Because Got Milk had been retired for six or seven years when I first started. And I was able, uh, with the agency's help, to bring it back to the market. And so that's quite a story. I may save that for the, for a later section, but um, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a very fun gig, and I'm very grateful for it. And so what, what about the business side? I mean, you mentioned COVID a minute ago. Yeah, obviously that changed a lot of consumer behaviors. Can you talk about how that's impacted the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's milk has been on a long-term decline, which I think is no secret. Um, it was interesting during all of the work from home, we definitely saw a boost in consumption and sales, um, as a lot of CPG goods did. I think one of milk's challenges is that 80% of its consumption is at home. But increasingly, people, especially young people and kids, are eating on the go. So it was fascinating to see that when people were home, they were reaching for milk in a very significant way. In fact, our research showed that it was in the top three most essential grocery items that mothers particularly were shopping for. And so it was good affirmation that I don't think people dislike milk or that they've fallen out of love of milk. And I always say the reports of milk death are greatly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. I think it's just more of a fit between occasion and lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. But we definitely saw a lot of gains. Uh, which obviously have been hard to lap as people are now returning, fortunately, to a more normal lifestyle. But the need for milk is nutritional benefits, the affection that people have for the category, despite all of the attacks from uh, other alternatives, uh, is still very strong. 
I'm a die- diehard milk drinker, so I, I'm definitely in that category. I will openly admit that uh, cereal is my go-to food of choice. And if my wife ever leaves me, I would pretty much spend the rest of my life just living on milk and cereal. <laughs> it's like, can never go wrong. <laughs> cereal crosses more day parts than I realized before I took this job, <laughs> especially for your demographic. Cereal any time of the day, apparently, yeah, is a very I'll common make, price. <laughs> So um, I wanted to just jump gears a bit before we kind of get into the, the, the real meat of this episode. The other thing I, I would, I'd love to ask you about is how your, the years you spent on agency side. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, it, you know, it was your kind of most transformative role. I believe you left agency land around 2013, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did all those years in, in agency land kind of impact how you look to work with your agencies today? Yeah, I always laugh when I'm working with new agency partners that I, in some ways I can be the best client ever and I can be the worst client ever, right? I, I seek to be a good client because I value the partnership with a lot of empathy, right? Literally have sat in those shoes, literally understand perhaps more than most how client feedback and client ways of working and client expectations can good get good or bad work out of an agency. So I... You know, I really try to keep that top of mind and act with empathy. I can be a bad client because sometimes I know too much, right? And I know sometimes where the dead bodies are buried. And I'm guilty sometimes of saying to um, account leaders, I was like, don't bullshit a bullshitter. (laughs) Come on on now. (laughs) So, but I hope to try to build that kind of relationship where we're operating as human beings and it's not super formal and that they take the appropriate push and pull and the spirit in which it is offered to get to better work and better outcomes. Uh, So if you did have to give someone uh, maybe who's stepping into a role, whether it's a CEO role or any form of marketing leadership role, advice on on how to build a great great relationship with your agency partners what, what would that advice look like for me it's a lot about alignment and communication mm-hmm. i think too often and it's not just between agencies and clients but even within parts of a client organization people are not aligned it sounds obvious right you've lived that i've lived that the strategy says this but every part of the equation is chasing a slightly different set of activities mm-hmm. so i think if you can pull the Rue Goldberg machine together and keep the North Star in mind, be it equity or sales or all of the above, I think that's super helpful. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I've learned, having sat on both sides of the table, is that you simply cannot communicate enough. You cannot mm-hmm. communicate frequently enough. You cannot over-communicate. I think that sometimes there's a sort of a them and us nature to it. And I really try to think of agencies as an extension of the marketing department and maybe sharing more than I would, giving them more context than they normally would get, and then being open to their feedback both ways. And so I still find time sometimes, you know, clients are not as transparent about what they are looking for, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Agencies are not as transparent about the struggles they are facing. And, you know, I think it just, you have to remember this human beings doing things together as a team. And so I'm a big believer in communicating and communicating and communicating more. I want to uh, ask a couple more questions in this area before moving on. I'm obviously passionate about kind of new business models and things of around how people are servicing uh, you know, brands and, and supporting, playing supporting roles in the marketing ecosystem. You, you've obviously, because you've also been on both sides of the equation, I think have probably stronger opinions than most. Can you tell us anything about you know, how, how you think, you know, I guess, marketing orgs should be designed today? In terms of you know how much maybe is in house and 
and how much they lean on the agencies. You know, if you, and I guess combined with that, do you believe there's kind of understanding what you believe is kind of the shifting role of the agency, assuming it's different from how you perceived it from 10 years ago? I mean, similar to the thing we'll talk about, my observation is it's really not a one size fits all, mm-hmm. I think, solution. It's a short version. And I think if you're embarking on any kind of agency or external consulting partnership, it's good to be super clear about what you're solving for. Mm-hmm. And maybe because I've now worked across so many client groups and I sit in a lot of industry boards as well, it's just the, the sheer diversity of needs is quite staggering. I mean, for example, I worked on hair care twice, right? Once with P&G and once in L'Oreal, same category, deep competitors. The way they thought about marketing and the way they went to market and their culture was so different that to build an agency solution for them was a really different exercise. So I, I generally don't know that I could give a pronouncement. I, I think it's important to build for today is what I always say. And I think one of the things that's hard in big organizations is there's a lot of legacy layers of mindset, process, ops, KPIs. And sometimes we are not keeping pace with the reality of today. So I don't think there's a set answer, but I do think you need to be fit for purpose and the, mm-hmm. and for today's consumers, today's marketplace. And frankly, I think most marketing organizations are lagging our um, end customers. Mm. Great, great, great insight. But like you said, it, 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 there isn't really one uh, one perfect answer, which is a perfect transition over, uh, I think, to what we I really wanted to pick your brain about today. So, you know, as I highlighted early in, in the episode today, uh, we started talking a little bit about you know, how how if I asked you what modern marketing might look like, how you know how you might answer that or how you might think about that. And when we had our kind of you know pre chat uh, to O'Ship, I think the answer was you know it's not necessarily um, an either or scenario. So I'd love to understand you know when when if someone approaches you and says, hey uh, you know Yin. What, 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 do, what do we need to focus? Is it, is it data or is it judgment-based? Is it uh, strategy or is it execution? You know, when people are challenging you for these kind of either-or scenarios, what, what's your stance on that and, and, and how would you normally respond? Yeah, I know what we were talking before. I mean, I, I frankly get kind of annoyed when I see those headlines of, you know, whatever they are, TV is dead, you know, execution only matters or programmatic is taking over the world. I just don't think marketing is that simple anymore. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it's about building the ecosystem and balancing the factors and the tactics against each other and keeping the outcomes in mind. I was thinking this morning about this conversation, like modern marketing is almost like a real Goldberg machine. If you're familiar with those analogies, the machines are very complicated moving parts, all trying to catch a mouse or blow up a balloon. And all parts of the machine are important. And frankly, this is the frightening part of being in marketing. You're only as good as your weakest link. (laughs) And so it's, Mm -hmm. yes, you need to prioritize. Yes, you can double down on some things, but you really cannot have any huge outages in the way you think about strategy and execution, data and judgment, creative and media, whatever Mm -hmm. dichotomy the industry wants to put themselves into, brand versus performance, which is one of my pet bugaboos. I really resent Mm -hmm. that division. I just don't think it's that simple. I, I think you really have to be slightly ambidextrous, schizophrenic, call you what you will, and be willing to roll in that complexity and enjoy it, hopefully. Hey, I want to uh, challenge your thinking a little bit, and and uh, or at least, or just make sure that I'm fully framing it up in my head. So I think there's one thing when you're talking about, let's say, the 
the balance of thinking between these different buckets of where you can kind of apply your energy. And I think there's another one that's really specific around uh, like where you're spending, let's say media as an example, which I know is a subject, you know, you know, really well, and I'm sure far, far better than, than, than me even, you know, when I think about uh, like, let's say you've got a you know, certain amount of marketing spend as a brand, do you still think you, you know, is it worth being limiting the number of channels you spend in, or is that and thinking also play of like, Hey, you should be in a whole bunch of places for this. Uh, the reason I, I ask is there's, there's one bit of, advice someone gave me once from a colleague at, at, at uh, Bain Capital when I, w- I was actually putting a plan together with one of my prior interim leadership roles. And and they said, look, you don't want to be a drip in a bucket. You don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to check a lot of boxes with a lot of ands. Um, and they said, you know, I think we want to limit, maybe limit some of the spend. But is that, would you say that's different from the and that you were talking about or are they in, or intertwined? I mean, I think they're related, but for me, the end is about mindset and openness and not having a bias towards a channel mix, for example. So I totally appreciate and get your point about you don't want to spread yourself like peanut butter over so many channels. You're not an effective reach or frequency in any of them. Obviously, we know adding additional channels usually helps, but if you don't have sufficiency, then don't bother. But what what I'm counting against is the bias towards or four channels before we've even done the work mm-hmm. before you even examine the strategy mm-hmm. it's that old adage of you know if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail mm-hmm. and i think sometimes not necessarily agencies but obviously we're influenced by the publisher ecosystem and every publisher believes deeply in their channel and their solution and i think you need to apply some critical thinking and basically act like a scientist like adam grant would say and like scientifically what's the right mix and how many channels can i afford what i find is a lot of practitioners and i would say myself included though i've tried to watch my own bias come in with a lot of muscle memory a lot of heuristics from prior experiences and it may be right and it may be wrong but i just don't think it's good to start with a preconceived notion of what the channel mix is but i'm not advocating that it should be omni-channel for the sake of it if you can't afford it Okay, just a good good clarification. So I, I'm I'm going to throw out. You talked about uh, pre, your preconceived notions a moment ago. So I'm going to give throw out some what I think are classic either or questions I've heard people bring up to me in my career, and I want to see what how your your reaction to the yin and strategy would respond to each of these. So uh, let's do foundations or innovation. Yes, one of my personal favorites, as you know. I mean, I think great innovation is born from foundational strategy and foundational insights around your audience and how you're meeting their needs via product or a marketing solution. And I think sometimes innovation fails because it's almost like innovation for innovation's sake. We have to do something new or this thing is hot. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't forget the primary role of marketing is to match a consumer with its with their need and convince, persuade them to some kind of action. So I get a little nervous when innovation is out sort of in space somewhere. I, I'm all for dedicated innovation resources, don't get me wrong, because sometimes when they're in the base business or the mothership, they don't get the love and attention and a special nurturing of green shoes that they need. But innovation does, in my mind, does not absolve you from foundational understanding of what are we really trying to do here? Like what does mm-hmm. success look like? It may be a different process and a different risk appetite, but I get super worried in these kind of like strategy-free zones where we're like, whatever it is, <laughs> NFTs, 
you know, AI, Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, but like, what is it for? (laughs) So I do love innovation. And I think those of you who have worked with me know in my career, I've always pushed for it. I've been an advocate for it, but it needs to be grounded. And like, what are the foundational things we're solving for? In a, in a startup that uh, you know, it's, there's a smaller group of people and you know, lots of people have to wear lots of multiple hats. But as you start to get into larger organizations and you may have, you know, one person that's their whole job is about innovation. And then you've got other people that may be responsible for building some of the foundational uh, building blocks. Is it is it their responsibility to figure out that they need to work in a world of and, or is that the role of the CEO to help kind of bring, bring these things together? I mean, it's a little bit of both, right? I think a lot of CEO work and maybe to some degree CMO work is what I call like silo spanning, right? I mean, big organizations need to have some degree of silos because there's some functional or divisional, however you're organizing a company, but you need to try to create enough horizontal cross-cutting information flow, alignment of objectives, cultural synergy. I know you spend a lot of time on that at Chameleon mm-hmm. because it's just unfortunate. And we've all seen it in our careers where people are like dogs, you know, like dogs on our sled, do- sled dogs all pulling in like different directions. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, no wonder the sled's not moving because one <laughs> dog's going this way and one dog's going that way. So I do think a CEO needs to be super conscious about enterprise-wide alignment and creating both the cultural expectation and the systems and processes mm-hmm. to make sure that expectation trickles down into the day-to-day operations because it is too easy for base and innovation to become not just not aligned, but sometimes competitive to each other because of that war for resources internally. And of course, a lot of CEOs' jobs are betting resources, so I get it. But as a way to do it collaborative and to decide and commit and move on and not have it be this eternal turf war. Well, on the note, I'm going to use uh, another example, which uh, can sometimes be used to solve turf wars, but I don't want to get too much in the answer for you. Data or, you know, gut judgment and, and feeling and, you know, just pulling the trigger, you know, which, which is it? I know you're going to answer with Anne, but how do you bring these together uh, in, in your take? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a powerful end in, in my um, experience, in my practice, and just the way my brain works. I guess with a first name like Yin, maybe that Yin-Yang balancing act is somewhat inevitable. Um, I mean, I love data. I mean, I, I almost wore my Data Diva t-shirt today, but I decided that would um, be a little <laughs> obnoxious. But so much... This, of, is a, this is a safe space, Yin. You can but, wear your Diva but, t-shirts on your ship and no one ever I got about the Diva part going, at least. I'm not sure <laughs> about the data part. But there's still, so in the end, there's so much of business judgment and marketing judgment, and particularly on the content side, is... Uh, intuitive, right? And I think you need to use the data to inform your intuition, to inform Mm -hmm. your judgment. I don't think you can follow it blindly. I don't think you can ignore it with impunity either. Mm -hmm. So I like to be a good student, to absorb the data, to have critical thinking about it. And if if it's a clear data-driven answer, so be it. But I think particularly the CEO level and CMO level, if the data would simply answer it, we wouldn't have jobs, to be honest, right? And if maybe over time we'll automate and those things that are truly transactional will go to non-humans. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a lot of decisions that only humans can make. And, and you know, in psychology, it's, most of your decision-making is made in your limbic reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the rest of your brain exists to rationalize it, to be honest. So I try to train my judgment to be an informed one. 
but I have, a, I have faith in my judgment. I have faith in my gut. And one of the reasons I took this job is to be able to move and be more entrepreneurial and balance data and judgment more quickly. And it's been uh, pretty joyous, I will say. This is a totally random uh, tangent I'm going to go down, but it's connected, but we're, we're going down a little rabbit hole now. So I'm, I'm really inspired by how you're thinking about this. And, and, I, and I'd like to believe I, I also come from the school of and. I, you know, I, I believe in this as a, as, you know, as a better way to, to think about these challenges. But I also can't help but think like when you're thinking about and, which means let's say you've got a team, you've got groups of people over here that maybe bring a certain amount of things to the table. You've got a group over here that brings a certain amount of things to the table and, and you're trying to bring these together into one kind of coherent thought. In a traditional company, there is uh, maybe a, a leader or a small group of leaders that then kind of synthesize that and maybe bring it together into the, into the go forward plan. I have been simultaneously pin that thought. We're going to connect it to another dot now. Uh, lately, I've been spending a lot of time obsessing on, on uh, DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, kind of a blockchain concept. But the reality is it doesn't have to do anything to do with blockchain at the end of the day. This is about systems for groups to make decisions, uh, you know, kind of a ground up uh, kind of approach to decision making. Do you think that and, and let's just call it the and strategy, do you think that would be more effective if it's decided by one or two small groups of people at the top synthesizing data? Or if it really is about lots of different thinking coming together, could, would you think and strategies may be more effective if the groups kind of like collaboratively decide on these things with the wisdom of the crowd, if you, if you will? I think there's a role for both because I think not all decisions are made equally and not all decisions have the same complexity and the same complexion. So I think the and thinking can be used in either situation, whether or not it's a small senior group or empower group, or if it's a super decentralized one. I think, you know, having an openness to balance conflicting factors should be valuable in both of those contexts. Um, I suspect that the pace of the world that we live in and the degree of change that we're facing, there probably is going to be more and more development on the decentralized side. I, I, I think we've talked about before, a lot of organizations are not built for today, you know, and, and, and therefore increasingly not fit for purpose. I don't know if I know what the solution is for the future, but I do think organizational experiments like more decentralized decision-making, clearly more remote workforce is a big one that we're all living through today. But I do think the good thing in a decentralized one in terms of and is that you have people advocating for all the different potential dimensions and the two sides of the balancing act. Mm -hmm. In a small group, particularly if you're close, and you've grown up together, you all have the same bias, there's no one to challenge and act as that counterbalance to like, you know, well, what about this? What if this? Here's a countervailing argument in a bigger group, you're naturally going to get more conflict and more diversity of opinions which is healthy, I think, but then trying to get efficiently to a final decision is also going to be important in that context. You uh, mentioned, by the way, I love that you've uh, gotten on a, a bit of a tangent on this new way of thinking, which I think is a, a great uh, segue to my next question. But you did keep, you've mentioned bias multiple times today. And I do want to kind of mention that we, I want to go back to that and talk about some of your thoughts uh, around, about bias later. But my last one for you is, and probably my favorite, and super related to what we just talked about, uh, culture or process? It's a good one. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm going to say both, <laughs> but I have been surprised over my life, the power of culture. I mean, I think the saying is that culture eats strategy for lunch. 
every day. So that I feel pretty confident about. I think great process should facilitate great culture building. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if you put and impose a process into a culture that's not ready for it or not built for it, I don't think those process changes stick. So in that case, I do think culture is a very important and sometimes underestimated force because it's squishy, quote unquote, like it's hard to measure. (laughs) So I think but cultural, but how do you get to culture without enough process to scale it and embed it and make it real and not just a bunch of fun PowerPoint slides or a bunch of team building events. Mm-hmm. So I think they do go together, but um, I think culture trumps a lot of things in my experience. It's funny that people, I, I frequently hear people pitch this sometimes as counter opposing things. And, and as I mentioned, I, I'm, you know, I'm for the end club as well, but I would argue that, uh, culture is what kind of drives either your ability to acquire or retain talent. You frequently yeah. because it's it's the glue that really uh, you know really gets people stuck in your business. Um, process I think is really great for um, scalability. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know if you if 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 a lot of if all these things are intertwined around people, the process I think is what allows you to scale your culture, and that's why I think they're so so intertwined. I I, I couldn't agree more. So I, I want to change gears uh, for a second, and uh, let's talk a little bit about your kind of passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workspace. Uh, you know, it's something I, I know that you you're known for, and know you you know always have got a great opinion on it. But the, the one I'd love to just start with, just to kind of jumping into the, the ultimate question for me is how do we get businesses to move past this kind of lip service about talking about DEI and you know, actually doing something meaningful and driving some real action? Oh my goodness, Freddie, how long do you have for that <laughs> answer? Um, <laughs> by two hours and go. Start your end. <laughs> well, I mean, I think as you know and saw, like I recently joined the the board of an industry association dedicated to that specific question because, frankly, I just can't wait anymore. I've been having some version of the same conversation my whole career, and I've been at this longer than I want to admit. I think a couple of things, and this is probably a very practical but maybe not very popular thing to say, I, I think what is happening is that business leaders and CEOs and boards and investors of seeing that DEI has a real business and commercial impact. And maybe that's not the most noble motivation and maybe people should do it because it's the right thing to do. But I think the thing that will ultimately shake things loose is this increasing recognition for both from a talent standpoint and a marketplace standpoint and an investor standpoint that DEI is no longer optional. And I think people are going to vote with their time and talent and money. And I'm, uh, and maybe that's what it takes because what I often feel like in a lot of these situations and, and I'm in a lot of all these conversations with a lot of hand wringing of like, well, you know, it's just this hard and we've been trying this and we're trying that. And while part of me is supportive because I've been in those situations. It's not easy to drive change in organizations. It's not easy to drive change in society. But part of me also says, if it was important to you, you would have done it by now. Mm-hmm. If it was a business imperative like your share price, your EPS, your bonus, your build a plant, put a man on the moon, build an electric car, think of all the impossible things that humans have done. If it was important enough, we would have done it by now. So I, mm-hmm. right now, one of my focal points is 
and trying to be out and loud and an advocate for this is important. Of course, it's important from a moral standpoint and societal standpoint, but I deeply, deeply believe it is super important from a business standpoint also. And uh, I mean, you're seeing, I think the companies that, that adopt this, they're, they're seeing seeing the impact, I think, both professional, business-wise and hopefully within their in their cultures. Um, but it is a really a really challenging subject. I always try and ask people where they're they're at with this in their businesses. But I think to your point, I, I hear a lot of people um, talking and, and maybe not enough action. Even you know, even Camillion Collective, we struggle. It's it's hard uh, to really um, you know sometimes feel like you're making progress even when you're you're trying really hard. So I guess any on that note, any advice whether it's for companies uh, like uh, Camillion Collective or for advice for me or for other companies that are you know, trying to take action, you know, anything they can do to either get started or to accelerate things? I mean, I think you need to treat it like any other initiative in some ways and not put it necessarily into a special bucket. I think if you were tackling any new initiative at your company, you would find expertise, you would set yourself goals, you would set yourself milestones, real ones, right? And be willing to hold yourselves and the organization accountable for them. I, I know it sounds simple but you'll be surprised i mean a, lo- a lot of talent in hr things because the whole area is seen as quote-unquote squishy when it shouldn't be people are not held accountable to to goals and it's and i think it's important to meet people where they are set yourself realistic goals i mean if your workforce is five or ten percent diverse like don't set yourself a goal of becoming 50 percent 50 percent diverse set yourself a goal of being one percent better <laughs> So I think it's important to just to start. Sometimes it's paralyzing, to be honest, when the complexity of the topic, the sensitivity of the topic is super hard to talk about. And so sometimes I get it. CEOs and C-suites are frightened to talk about this in public forums. But start somewhere, pick something, and just treat it and measure it and move it along like you would any other part of your business. Why wouldn't you? Uh, so we were talking a moment ago about measurement, and uh, one of the audience members put out a question: What is most valuable? Uh, what, what is the most valuable Wall Street metric for DEI to prove that value? And uh, any any opinion on that? Not not particularly. I have a good friend who is deep in this investigation. To be honest, I don't think there's an obvious one right now. Um, I don't know if there's an obvious metric for talent in general. And I do agree with I think Robert's comment that a lot of current DI metrics are trailing ones. So um, stay tuned. Like I said, I have a good smart friend who is trying to figure that out. I've seen different experiments, but um, I think it's one of the things that holds back the space. And frankly, also one of the things that maybe holds back marketing because having sat in a lot of meetings, sometimes when marketers report on their metrics, you sound like a crazy person, right? Like you have the CFO with, with Gap, you have the supply chain guy with the factories running at full everything and numbers that are perfectly understandable. And then the marketer stands up and you sound crazy. You're like, impressions, who cares? I mean, like engagement, clicks. You, I mean, it's. I think marketing has its own metrics problem and DEI has its own metrics problem. So. I think that's a, a very, very fair point. So... I, well, I got another question for you. I'm going to change gears a second again. I, I think I mentioned earlier I'm a bit of a, a bit of a milk uh, junkie, uh, and I mentioned that my mom, uh, that was my wife and I. So because of that, I, I also have a lot of peanut butter, and I get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk at least four times a week brought to me by my mommy, which means I'm basically still a forty-something-year-old man-child uh, who gets his milk and, it, and his peanut butter sandwiches, and so. 
I think about you as like the, as a CEO of MilkPap, you're like the ultimate milk mom now. And so, is you know, I was wondering what it's like being uh, you know a mom at the head of, of MilkPap. You know, whether you whether it's either how it's impacted you at home at all, or even like I don't know what you've learned about. What, you know, how milk impacts mothers all around the, the world or something, or, or I shouldn't say mothers, just the family unit, you know, but I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah. I mean, on a personal level, my son can now drink as much milk as he wants, which is like gallons upon gallons upon gallons. <laughs> which when I took this job, no one was happier than he was. He was like, yes, <laughs> always milk with Oreo. Was he hoping you were some kind of barter system? You were just getting paid in milk? Exactly. He would take milk or ice cream or a lot of dairy products. So, you know, it's been interesting. I mean, my biggest learning on milk is it's really, I know this sounds sort of lame, but it's almost, it really is like a miracle food in some ways where you learn about the amount of nutrition that's contained in it and the amount of claims that are backed by it. I worked in food a long, long time, and sometimes it's very hard to find like even a single nutritional claim you can make. And then milk, you're swimming in it. And so the role that milk and dairy plays in American diets has been a huge revelation to me. Like I took it because I thought the category challenge was fascinating. I took it because, you know, who doesn't want to work on got milk? But I've really been humbled by just how important dairy is in the diet. And frankly, the big food and nutrition problem that Americans face even at Campbell's, we would spend time thinking about in a country that's wealthy, how can you have both people who are hungry and people who are obese? And often at the same time. So food security and food and wellness is a big macro topic, I think. And I really believe strongly that milk and dairy have a huge role to play for that, particularly among underserved communities. Um, it, it is an enormous source of nutrition. It is very affordable to get that much protein and nutrients and minerals and vitamins in your diet. It's very hard to replace on a non-dairy diet. And when you see, you know, kids and, and so how many kids are now more and more kids are depending on food aid. I think the number has gone from one in four to one in six. Wow. The way around, sorry, from one in six during the pandemic and in a country this wealthy, there should be no hungry kids. I'm sorry. It's just yeah. not. Yeah, I agree with that. So I want to be conscious of time, Ian, and I have to squeeze in this one last question. It would not be O'Ship if I did not ask you for an O'Ship story. And as a reminder, uh, you know, a lot of this show is based on this premise that we get very, very uh, successful people like you on the show and, and let other people know, look, you didn't, you know, it's not always been rainbows and, and, uh, and uh, you know, whatever, cupcakes. It's like, you know, there's been some probably pretty tricky moments along the way. Sometimes those maybe uh, were just key learning moments that shifted your career and that impacted you in a really positive way. Some maybe didn't change you at all, but were a complete disaster and kind of funny now. Probably not funny when they happened. But if you got any great OSHIP story, you can you can share with our audience, let other people know they're, they're not alone. And the challenges they deal with would be, would be awesome. Oh, I mean, I have so many, Freddie, you can't even imagine. I mean, I've been like fired two and a half times, so we could start with that. Wait, wait, hold um, on, hold on. I have to latch on. How do you get fired a half a time? <laughs> You get almost fired and then stay with my company. Actually, someone who's on this call right now. So you're like 24 hours away from being fired and somebody saves you. That's the half. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, I think I count that more as a quarter, but I mean, let's not split hairs. Exactly. Half that easier. But my OSHIP story is actually a, a, a recent one. And it's not, it's not exactly personal, but when I, I took the Got Milk job, 
right before the pandemic, um, so October 2019, 2020, we were a Olympic sponsor. So we had like a year's worth of programming, basically pre-designed before I ever took the job. It was being produced. It was lovely. It was blessed by the board. I was like, great. I can spend the year learning the business and, you know, enjoy letting the Olympic thing, you know, fall out and figure out what comes next, do the strat plan. It was, I had a great, lovely plan. And we, we actually, one of the last business meetings I was at was an Olympic brainstorming, if one can believe that, like sometime in mid-March. And then literally over the weekend, because we were supposed to launch in April, 100 days out, and all the headlines start to come in, like the rumble start to come in, maybe they'll postpone, maybe it'll be no spectators, maybe whatever. And I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, shit, like, we have a whole year of programming that we've, they have just produced that I have so lovingly inherited that I'm so supportive of. I was like, wait, what, what do we do now? <laughs> what do we do amidst all the chaos of pandemic and working from home and wiping down your groceries? I'm like, like, do we get back to invent- media inventory? Do we run nothing? Do we pull something out of the vault? Like, what do you do? Crazy. So that is my old ship story. And then somewhat related to that, people often ask me like how we brought back got milk. And I love to see this wonderful strategic kind of carefully thought out strategy, but it was because we lost the Olympic program and the agency had a very smart social media driven campaign and they wrote a lot of lines for it. And they're the ones that came to me and said, we think we should put got milk back on it. And I had to decide over a weekend, if you can believe it. I called like all kinds of people because I was like, I want to make sure I was doing it for the right reasons, not yeah, just yeah, because yeah. like how fun would it be to bring back God Milk. So I, yeah. I talked to a bunch of people, but I had a weekend to decide if one can believe that. And Monday morning, I was like, I guess we're going. Let's go. So awesome. Uh, yeah, and and, and, no, and I don't know if you know the answer. So sorry to put you on the spot. Any concept of how many like Got Milk iterations were done out over there over the years? That's a great question. We have a lot of them up in our office. I mean, it ran yeah. for. I, think like 20 years yeah, and I mean, pretty I mean, frequently refreshed. there could be hundreds of, it must be in the hundreds i would imagine yeah I, I could i could get someone to count them up we have <laughs> some of the more memorable ones in the office um yeah. but it's in the hundreds i imagine well i'm sure you're going to do some more great memorable ones uh Ian, it's i think a great a great place to to wrap up today uh, i'm so glad you're able to uh you know get on the show oh, i love that tavis salivar is asking we're going to see the milk mustaches again. You might see my milk mustache, uh, Tavis. I don't know if I can vouch for yin or not, but I'm prepared to give you a full O-ship milk mustache if you'll keep watching the show. <laughs> and please keep drinking milk, all of you, including Freddie. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm at least 1% of the uh, gross domestic uh, product there. So, uh, so Yin, uh, again, thanks again for joining. Is there any uh, ways, if anyone wants to keep up with you or learn more about you, be- best ways for them to, to kind of find or connect you with you? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, um, as is MilkPep. So if you ping me on LinkedIn or, you know, follow me on there, I, you know, a pretty active user, both in terms of MilkPep activities and diversity and marketing issues. So that's probably the platform I'm the most, most active on. Okay, great. Well, again, thanks, thanks again, Yin. I just want to thank everyone who's tuned in. Uh, best thing you can do to support our ship is please subscribe or follow any of our social profiles. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it on your social profiles and, and, and with your followers. We're happy to have a like or a comment or just glad you're here. We just do this for fun. There's no other reason than just bringing great, smart people uh, who are happy to share some of their life experiences to all of our betterment. And Ian, obviously you delivered on that today. So thank you so much. 
Uh, always great to see your face. Thank you, Freddie. And thanks everyone for watching our ship. We'll see you next week. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show. <laughs>